Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 380. Special Yutes Kislev edition, as uh, this week, two days will be Yutes Kislev, Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. So Chassidus Applied, seems appropriate that we honor and celebrate this Rosh Hashanah, the new year of Chassidus. We'll also be speaking about Parshas Vayeshev, which is this week, as well as some other interesting recent developments in the news and its uh, Chassidus-applied angle through the lens of Chassidus. This program is uh, dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuch Elena and Miriam Baschayasar Altej, Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, Dedicated by Pinchas Todris, Ben Miriam, and Sarah Bas Rachel Altes. So let's go straight into Yutas Kislev, Rosh Hashanah of Chsidis, in the year Tov Kuf Nuntes. The Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe, was liberated after 53 days in prison. And it was seen not just as a physical event, but as a spiritual event that this opened up the door and gave the license that what the Alter Rebbe was innovating, was initiating by bringing Chassidus to the masses in a way that could be understood in Chabad, Chachma Bina Das, and Seich Lanushi, human intellect, was not just allowed but vindicated and redeemed in the way that it should be done more than ever as the Baal Shem Tov and the Maggid told Alter Rebbe while he was in prison and he asked, what should I do after I'm freed from here? They said, you should increase. And indeed he did, the Alter Rebbe did. And the full-blown establishment of Chassidus Chabad that followed, Tanya was already printed before that, but all the Maimorim that came afterwards, what they call after Petersburg, meaning after Petersburg, after his imprisonment in Petersburg, was far broader and far more developed than it was before that, meaning developed, meaning expounded upon. And still it was called Chachma, Chachma of Chassidus. And Mitle Rebbe would bring it into Bina, and all the Rabbeim afterwards developed it further. So now we have the full body and literature of all the seven Rabbeim, the seven generations of Chassidus Chabad. So the first question, of course, I'll just read it, someone asked it, which would have been a question I would have asked myself. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what is the most important lesson we can learn from the Alter Rebbe's imprisonment on false charges? And his ultimate acquittal and freedom on Yutas Kislev. A lesson we can use in our daily lives to make our lives and the world around us better so we can be ready for Mashiach. So this gets to the very core of the issue and the question, what is Chassidus? And therefore then we can understand what Yutas Kislev is. Chassidus is part of Teira that was given at Har Sinai. Let's begin with that. Primius Ateira. When the Ebishter gave Moshe Rabbeinu the Teret, Teret Bepirushanit, now the Rambam says, the Teret was given with this explanation because the written Teret itself is brief, almost like short notes. So it was given together with the Teret Shabal Peh. Teret Shabal Peh includes Nigla the Teret and Primisa Teret. Now there are many references in Teret, in the written Teret, that you could see clearly this Primisa Teret. I mean, just begin Bereshis. When you say, what does that mean? And even the very day of creation, God created heaven and earth. 
and then later the creation of the human being in the divine image. What does that mean? So you see right here that you see that all of it is really indicating to a deeper dimension. And then when you read further the, the narratives, the stories, some places more obvious and other places less, but there's a whole deeper undercurrent, an, under, uh, an, an, in, an inside story, an inner, inner narrative, which was revealed in Primisater. Pshat Remesh Drusa, the Torah has four dimensions, the literal, the, homo, the, the allegorical, the homiletic, and the esoteric, or the mystical. Chassidus is, is part of the Primisater. The Rebbe has in Kuntus and Yonosh Chassidus, which he delivered actually on Yutas Kislev Tavshin Chavav, explains that Chassidus in Primisater is actually Yechida, and therefore it permeates and is beyond the four dimensions as he discusses there. But regarding our discussion here, it is primisatera. Over the generations, just like Nigla Dutera was developed and was revealed in its time, it took a while till it was written down in Mishnah and then Talmud, because it was not supposed to be written down. The same thing, primisatera has its ishtashlus, its so-called evolution. And as such, it was revealed First, Yechidus Gula to individuals, Rabshim Bayechoy, the Sefer Hazoya, to his Idra, to his, his uh, inner group. And over the years, it began to become more and more revealed till the point, and we jump ahead to Arizal, who said, Mitzvah Legal now the time has come to reveal it. And that only accelerated to the point of the Baal Shemtev, who heard from Mashiach, when your wellsprings of Chsidis will spread outward. That's when Osimah Domalka Mashiach and Mashiach will come. And this has become the motto, the, the, the theme, the essence of what Chassidus is. So what Chassidus is, first of all, is, part of, is essential Torah. But in Torah, Primisat Torah, the inner workings, understanding God, understanding God's cosmic order, say the Ishtashlis, to know God, to bring it to your heart. So there was always ways to achieve that, but Chassidus revealed a whole other dimension, which was necessary to be revealed exactly in that time. Why was it not revealed earlier? Because everything has its time. And there were challenges that were necessary to reveal the inner dimension is always more protected. Like the famous example that Alter Rebbe gave when they saw a page of Chassidus wandering on the floor. So it's Valgrinzich on the floor. So... One of, one of the, the or whoever said that to the Alter Rebbe, look at that, it's a disgrace. The Alter Rebbe said, yes, it's true, but because the child of the king is sick, and he gave the famous analogy that nothing could save him, one doctor suggested maybe you take the most precious stone in the king's crown, you crush it and mix it with water, and perhaps you can get it between the clenched teeth of, this, of the sick child, the sickly child, who's on his deathbed, and maybe that will save his life. Even a maybe, the king said, absolutely. So due to the the darkness, the spiritual darkness and ignorance in the later generations, you need to have a deeper surge from the inner dimensions of Teda to give us strength. That's one reason. Another reason is the other way around. Because we're getting closer to Mashiach, so before the dawn breaks, you start getting a glimmer, a, a, a taste. You taste from the foods of Shabbos. In this case, Shabbos, the Geula, you start tasting it beforehand. And these are interdependent. Why do you get a taste from Mashiach? Why, why, why do you get a taste of Mashiach then? Because it's deeper, the deepest darkness is before the dawn. And that's why you need that inner strength. 
So essentially, in one sentence, Chassidus came to revive, to regenerate, to rejuvenate the soul that was always there, but in a very expressive way, in a very revealed way, because that's what Chassidus does. When you learn Nigla, you learn the mechanics of Judaism, what Hashem, God, God wants of you to do. When you learn Chassidus, you learn the inner workings, the Nisham of it, Nishmasa da Araisa. So, now, could go back to what is the application there for Yutas Kisav, then there came a challenge, a challenge in heaven. Is this the right thing to do? Will it be wasted? Will much of the liquid spill to the floor and, and people won't appreciate it? Will it be abused? And many other questions. And with the vindication, with the redemption, the liberation of Yutas Kislev, Chesidus was now given a full license. Yes, this is the time. Now this is not overstating the fact. One has to wonder, without Chesidus, where Judaism would be today. Even with it, we have such, so many challenges. But it gave a fighting chance to, first of all, save the cream of the crop and to save the minds and the hearts and souls of many who were distracted or seduced by other interests, by the Western world and the other uh, the social forces that drew people. And Chassidus was a response, in many ways, Magdim Rafula Maka to the modern age. Not that the modern age per se is a negative, but you need the strengths, inner strengths, to be able to deal with it, to integrate Judaism, or what they call faith in modernity, Judaism in a world of science, and, can, and God in a world of materialism, you need deeper strengths. And that's exactly what Chassidus addresses, that inner unity that God can be found everywhere. Now this was always known, but now it's necessary. It became a necessity. It became like life and death. So the lesson, as this person asked the question, what do we learn from this in our daily lives? That we have a tremendous resource and a, uh, a gift called primis atere, called chesidus. Because we renew Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. This is the day when that door was opened, the license was given, as the Rebbe Rashab says, that the primary Yifutza Manasecha Chutza began Yutas Kislevan. So this is a day when we have to honor and celebrate it, but above all, in appreciating what these teachings are about, which is exactly what this program is. Chassidus applied, applying Chassidus to our lives. And even when there may be some type of resistance or impediment, like in the case of an arrest, Obviously, not necessarily a physical arrest, but even on a spiritual level where there may be some type of some resistance or impediment. So Yutas Kisra says that Chassidus is now here to stay and no impediment can stop our way. On the contrary, as the Rebbe Rashab also says, he says it's difficult to say, but you can say Yutas Kisra was like what the Gemara says, the Talmud says, about an olive, that it doesn't produce oil until you press it. That the Alter Rebbe, when he was pressed, and pressured due to the challenges of Yutas Kislev, of the days leading to Yutas Kislev, the 53 days he was in prison. And you can imagine for a Rebbe to be in a situation like that, that only brought out the oil, the most deepest and deepest oil within the olive. And the same thing with us, any challenge in any area of our lives, especially in the area around Chassidus, the response is that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger to use a modern lingo. It's not the Alter Rebbe's expression. On the words of the Pasuk in, in, uh, in Shmois, Kashayana Ism, as they were afflicted and oppressed, in direct proportion to that, they flourished and they thrived and they flourished. And that's the lesson. 
The lesson is also that Chassidus has answers to every challenge we have an issue. So it's not just an obligation to learn Chassidus. It's actually, as I mentioned, a gift. The Alter Rebbe says it has all the answers in Tanya, the introduction to Tanya. This is one of the This is the mission of this program: is to demonstrate those answers as much as possible. Whatever ma- matter, it could be marriage or relationships, it could be with children, it could be your own inner struggles and demons and fears and insecurities and inhibitions, or everything you wish Chassidus has a response to, and not just a response like a band-aid, a preemptive response, r- uprooting it from its root, not just symptomatic remedial medicine. But, and symptomatic, but actually dealing it from the root. And finally, the obligation and the mitzvah, the gift, to share it with everyone else around you. Because we need it. We live in a time where we need answers, we need direction, we need guidance, we need clarity, and that's what Chassidus provides. So here we are, celebrating Yutas Kislev in that context. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Chassidus is amazing as it stimulates our souls to do Torah and mitzvahs with joy and happiness and works as an antidepressant when we are having a bad day. Okay. So therefore, why did Hashem make us wait until the generation of the Baal Shem Tev and Alter Rebbe to reveal Chassidus? If a doctor knew a cure to a certain illness and said, and said everyone will have to wait 3,000 years until I reveal it, we would consider that doctor a sadist, wouldn't we? So this continues what I began saying just a few minutes ago. So first of all, everything is done in its time. In other words, when something is revealed, just like I mentioned before, the things that were revealed in the time of Shas, when Rabbein HaKadosh wrote the Mishnah, and then the Gemara that followed, everything in its time. So though they learned the ideas earlier, but when did it become formalized? And then many ideas, you could say Rashi came in his time, Rambam in his time, each one contributed something. Now remember, everything was given a Matan Tere, but when did something get revealed? Was the time was necessary. How did they learn Chumash and, and Gemara before Rashi? People ask. They had the strengths. And maybe they, it wasn't necessary yet to have that type of clarity. They were able to understand what they needed to understand in their time. So it's not a question of depriving someone from a medicine or depriving someone from, from something, from a, a, a gift. And I want to qualify, it's not medicine. Even though it does say in Teda that the Teda is there's like Nitin, where the, the Gemara says, that Ebishter gave a Yetzirah and then he gave Tavlin, Teda as Tavlin, which is like a spice, to, as a remedy to the Yetzirah. So the Rebbe already explains that it's not because Teda is a remedy. Tate is so powerful, it could also serve as a remedy to that point. Same thing with Chsidis. In Kuntus and Yonah Shateris Chsidis, the Rebbe speaks about this at length, relatively speaking. So, to go back to the point here is everything in its time. The challenges that Chsidis address, you can very easily say that before the Baal Shem Tev, how was it addressed? It wasn't like they were deprived. So, number one, either they lived in a pure environment where those challenges were not yet pronounced. You know, when you live insulated and isolated and discriminated against in a shtetl or in a ghetto, and you can't even assimilate if you want to. So there's a certain innocence and purity that people picked up without words just from the smell of the chicken soup in their grandmother's kitchen, perhaps. Not perhaps, for sure. And that's why you see the almost zero assimilation. However, when the world begins to change, whatever reasons it changes, there are many benefits to it too. It led to democracy and freedom, 
but also together with that come great challenges. So now you need more resources. That was point number one. Point number two, existed then too. Individuals knew it consciously. The rest of the Jewish people knew it subconsciously or unconsciously or superconsciously, as I just mentioned. So it's not that it wasn't there. It was there from the beginning of time. However, there comes a point where it has to be articulated, and not just for individuals, but for everybody. And thirdly, as I said, as we get closer to Mashiach, you could ask the same question. Mashiach will heal all problems. So why deprive the world of Mashiach for thousands of years? It's not depriving. It's totally by Masenu We didn't yet earn it. We began doing the work. We did a lot of the work. By now, we finished all the work, as the Rebbe says. So Chassidus goes hand in hand with that. Chassidus is a gili of Mashiach. And as we get closer to Mashiach, more chassidus is revealed. So these are some of the answers to explain it, it, why everything happens in its time, and here specifically regarding chassidus. We're taught that the 53 days the Alter Rebbe was in jail and on trial for writing the Tanya. We're taught that the 53 days the Alter Rebbe was in jail and on trial corresponds to the, to the 53 chapters in Tanya. And this mirrored a spiritual court case in heaven where angels were trying to prosecute the Alter Rebbe for revealing Chassidus. My question is, who are these angels and how were they punished for interfering with the spreading of Teir Chassidus? Humans in a physical world are able to make mistakes because we live in a world where the full revelation of godliness is concealed, so we don't always see the full picture. But how can we... But how can we... But how can angels make mistakes? They reside in a spiritual world where godliness is revealed and they're able to see the full picture. These angels should have known better and probably sinned against the Alter Rebbe and caused them pain and aggravation on purpose. And those angels deserve to be <laughs> eviscerated, 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 sorry. Well, first of all, there are no uh, rogue angels hanging around in heaven just doing whatever they want. When we say the expression that there was a kitrug in Shemaim, whether you call it prosecuting angels or some other force, you're saying that there was some spiritual reason to resist this. It wasn't just they decided, oh, you know what, the Alter Rebbe is not doing the right thing. The reason was because the Gilead Chassidus, the stakes were very high. Chassidus was going to bring, is going, was going to and will, and will bring Mashiach. So this was, the stakes were high. It's like when Adam and Chava were in Garden of Eden. So everyone asked the question, well, they couldn't just control themselves, especially knowing that just a few hours, according to the opinion that the Eitz Adas was a, a vineyard, a, a vine, a grapevine, and they would have made Kiddush a few hours later on, on the same fruit, on that wine, from that tree. They couldn't control themselves. And with that, they changed all of history. So the basic answer is very straightforward. The, the stakes were so high that there was a force that challenged them. The purpose of creation is not... The Ebishter wants Mashiach and Gula just easy to come. He just make a world of Gula. Even that would be a question. What's the purpose? He wants a b'tachtenim. There should be tachtenim, which means they're completely divine, a world that's completely concealed of the divine and that human beings have free will and they can choose. In this case, Adam and Chava represented the entire human race. Imagine 8 billion Yetzirahs in one person, or in two people. One Yetzirah, look how hard it is to resist. 8 billion. So the serpent represented that. 
Knowing the stakes were high, other Machava were given the command, do not eat from this tree, but all the forces stood up against them because knowing the stakes. Now those forces, as it says in the Gemara and Alter Rebbe brings in Tanya, Pnina Vesotin, the Shem Shemayim Niskavnu. Those forces are also the Shem Shemayim. They're basically God's angels that God sends and says, I want you to test my son. My king, the king is testing his son with a negative uh, uh, Nisoyen to see whether he'll withstand the challenge. So we are seduced by this world. And therefore there's resistance. Now, in heaven, the resistance here, not necessarily a seduction, could be a different type of resistance. When such a great revelation is about to happen, there's always the other forces that say, are they worthy? Will they abuse it, as I mentioned before? So this wasn't about angels, just rogue angels, and now we punish them. Now, once it was, once it was established that chassidus should be taught, these angels and all of heaven celebrated. That's why Yutas Kislev is a yomtiv, not just here, in all of existence. As it is with all other type of challenges. You can ask the same question. If uh, the Jews were in Egypt, don't you think that also was in heaven, decreed in heaven? And yet there was a purpose for it. And the purpose ultimately was re- realized. And then they left with the great treasures, the sparks and all the things that were elevated. They became a great nation through their challenges in Kur HaBarzal, in the in the, in the Egyptian exile and bondage. What did the, what the Alter Rebbe do differently to spread Chassidus than his predecessors, the Baal Shem Tev and the Magid? And why did other Jewish communities see the Alter Rebbe's work as an existential threat to Judaism? So much so that they libeled him to the Tsarist authorities. Okay. Very good questions. So first of all, on a very historical, basic level, the answer is very obvious. And this is, at the time, remember, they did not yet know where this was going with the Alter Rebbe. Those that met the Alter Rebbe, and that's why the Alter Rebbe went to Vilna to meet them, Vilna gone, to show him what we're doing is nothing, is not just not against Allah, on the contrary, it's only strengthening it all. Strengthening it all. But those that didn't know, and there was easy hearsay and rumors flew around. Remember, the, the Jewish people had just come from the debacle of debacle of Shabzai Tzvi and Jacob Frank. So as soon as there was word out that there was some type of new movement of spirituality, there was suspicion. I'm not saying everyone had good intentions, but there were definitely those that were suspicious. As the Rebbe points out many times, that was then. Afterwards, it was proven clearly what Chassidim came to do. On the contrary, to strengthen, to bolster, to empower Yiddishkeit. Primis Atayra didn't, does not, God forbid, instead of Chassidim, it's the soul, the Shmosa of the body of Tere. They come hand in hand. The Altareb, the Shulchan Aruch, and Tanya, Exodus. So the communities in heaven, you can say the challenge in heaven, also manifested that some communities also challenged the Altareb in that sense. They were about mastering the Altareb and informing on him that in general, Amasir is not a, something that Jews do. So that's really inappropriate. If you want to somewhere, somewhere try to justify, they felt the Alter Rebbe was a life and death threat, like literally in that sense. Even then, I don't know if it was allowed, but you could understand what the climate was like. And I'm not in any way justifying it, obviously. What did the Alter Rebbe do different? Well, the Balshamtev and the Magid was Nekudis. Chassidus was still short and brief, concentrated. Everything in that short and brief was there. 
The Alter Rebbe began to explain. That's why Chassidus Chabad. That's the Hisaf Chabad. What is Chabad? Chabad means bring it into Seichel. That now opens it up to all people. That's why Chassidim actually cried when they started seeing how the Alter Rebbe was teaching Chassidus. Not just out of joy, because out of concern. Will it be appreciated? Will it not be abused? That's why the Rabbeim was so adamant. Don't just learn Chassidus as a philosophy, as scholar, as to be a Veda. The Alter Rebbe was not coming to just engage the mind. He was coming to engage the heart, the, whole, the full human being. The mind is a bridge. The mind is a channel, is a window into the entire being, a cognitive and very cerebral approach, but meant to lead into Midas. So there were these, that, that, those were concerns there. But on the other hand, Yutas Kislev vindicated and demonstrated the time has come, and Al-Tareba was correct in his approach, and only to increase that. So in case there was never an, did the communities in Vilna ever apologize to the Al-Tareba afterward? In case there was never an official apology, since I'm a descendant of the Vilna Gon, I would like to hereby apologize to the Alter Rebbe and his community on behalf of the Vilna community, and may both our communities work together to inspire an, an increase in Teira and mitzvahs and an increase in acts of goodness and kindness that will inspire Hashem to immediately reveal Mashiach in the physical world. Amen. So, if I can speak on behalf of the Chabad side, we accept your apology. And... Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know if there was an official apology. I don't know if the Alter Rebbe was looking for an apology. The best apology is when all the Jewish world embraces Chassidus. In the famous letter the Alter Rebbe wrote after, after the liberation, the second section, Nagar Sakedish, he writes that we should not gloat, that we should continue doing what we have to do, all, always positive. As I said, the best uh, apology and the best, uh, I don't even want to say the word revenge, is the idea that Chassidus has permeated and continues to permeate all circles. It's part of part and parcel of Teda, all Jewish circle, no matter what community it may be, what background. And that continues, and as we come to Mashiach, everybody will, will learn Chassidus and Primus HaTeda. Okay. Is it true when the Tsar sent the police in the dreaded Black Mary chariot to arrest the Alter Rebbe. He saw them coming and slipped out the back door and was hiding from them. Then Rab Shmuel Munkis told Alter Rebbe that he should stop hiding and let himself be arrested because he's, if he's a real Rebbe, no harm will come to him. But if he's a charlatan, then he deserves what he gets. This poses two questions to me. Did Rab Shmuel Munkis really need to tell the Alter, this, this to the Alter Rebbe? Didn't the Alter Rebbe know it already on his own, that he was a real Rebbe no harm would befall him? Two, in other situations, during the Holocaust, real Rebbes who were big tzaddikim were harmed. And also everyone agrees that ten martyrs were real Rebbes and big tzaddikim, but the Romans were able to harm them. How can that be possible? Okay, very good questions. Yes, the story is true. A little more details involved. But basically, those, those are the points that the Shmuel Mukas did tell that to the Alter Rebbe. So let me respond to both questions being very, I said, as I said, excellent questions. Regarding the first question, the same can be asked about many situations where the Ebersh himself knows something and yet he wants us to ask for it. Like Pesach Sheni, B'nai Slavchad. Pesach Sheni, the Jews who cannot bring an offering, the, the Paschal offering during the, during the Pesach on the 15th of Nisan, 14th and 15th of Nisan, so they said, why should, we be, uh, why should we be less? Why should we be deprived? 
And the Ebesh said, yes, give him Pesach Sheni. There are times where we have to ask for something, the same thing with a Rebbe. Did the Alter Rebbe know? Well, first of all, his humility is, it's, I don't know if he's feeling a real Rebbe, that was not the point. Shmuel Munkus was saying to the Alter Rebbe and evoking from him and telling him, you know who you are. You know who you should be. You represent the Chassidus. It's not about your arrest. It's not about your personal life. You're representing Chassidus. Rabbi Shmuel had no doubt that he was just saying to the Alter Rebbe, so what are you concerned with? In heaven, if they want you to continue spreading Chassidus, nothing could stop you, as we've been discussing. And then he said, just to make the point, that in case that's not the case, you deserve everything you get, because then the whole thing has no purpose here. This isn't about protecting yourself. It's, you're representing the Ebishter. And you need a Chassid to say it. And al Rebbe, once it was confirmed, now, another aspect of that is because you need affirmation from Lamata. If the Alta Rebbe knows himself, like, like I said before, whether it's Moshe or the stories with Eberster, that's good. But you want an affirmation that the world recognizes the truth of the Rebbe and Chassidus. And again, not about Alta Rebbe as an individual, but about what he represents. So that answers that question. The second question is a very, sad, very sensitive question. And it goes back to the topic that we always have to address and things we don't know, the mysteries of God's ways. A chassid, a maimin, a person with betochen, faith, trust, never says, just because a tzaddik was killed in the previous generation, I stop having betochen now in my tzaddik. Because seichel is not what defines this. We will never understand why the ten martyrs happened. We'll never understand the Holocaust and others. But people went into it and said, yes, you do the right thing, God will protect you. We still say that. And then we see it doesn't happen. So it's a very big challenge and a very difficult one. But the answer of a maimin, the answer of a shmuel munkus would be, I'm very saddened that it didn't happen. I wish it did. But now my Rebbe is going to prison and I am convinced that he's a Rebbe and the Ebershter will protect him and he will be redeemed. And indeed, that's not what happened. So it's hard to make, start comparing notes and saying it didn't happen in other situations. How do you know it will happen here? Or the other way around. Since our Shmuel Mukhus was so confident, why were we not confident in other scenarios? And the answer is we are. Sometimes Hashem says no. Sometimes Hashem has his own plans. Yutas Kislev became the great Chagagola. So Shmuel Mukhus' faith in the Alter faith in Chassidus, faith in the Ebrister was rewarded and was realized Okay. Did the Rebbe once make the comparison of Yutas Kislev to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? What is the connection between the two events? Yutas Kislev was a liberation for one man and by default his greater community, but Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was for the entire Jewish nation. Well, the Rebbe actually did. It's a beautiful Sikh in Sikh is volume 5, Yutas Kislev Sikh, where he explains this idea. Um, gula, because number one, the Gemara says that all Geulas have a connection. Even the Geula of an individual, actually, the Gemara says, is also connected to all other Geulas. Because a Geula means that God is redeeming something. Yes, sometimes it can be an entire nation as the ones in Mitzrayim. Sometimes it can be a Rebbe, who, Hanasi, who Akel, is also an entire generation. But still, he was the individual. There, you see, it's Mitzrayim, clearly the entire Jewish people. Men, women, children, all were in, in exile and then were redeemed. But there's still a similarity and a commonality between them. That's number one. There the Rebbe goes on to explain about the Pulinim Sheches, that a Geula is not just a one-time thing, it's a perpetual thing, and the same thing with 
Yutas Kislev, Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. It wasn't just a one-time thing that happened in Tovkuf Nuntes, which is, but, but something that continues and is perpetual, and other comparisons. So, yes, of course, we don't celebrate Pesach and a Seder on Yutas Kislev, but nevertheless, there are commonalities and similarities. Yitzis Mitzrayim is still the Reish Kol HaGu'ulis, is the beginning and the head and encompasses every type of redemption. That we will be just, just as we, when we left Egypt, there were miracles, so too there will be when Mashiach comes. So you see, Yitzis Mitzrayim is directly connected to the Gu'ula. But in that sense, Yitzis Kislev also has an element in that because it's a Gu'ula of Primis Hatera, which also opens the door and breaks through the way and paves the way toward the Gu'ula Hamitiz Vashlem, as Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tev, that I will come when your wellsprings will be spread outward and the primary beginning of that spreading and the dissemination and distribution of those wellsprings was on Yutas Kislev. A few more Yutas Kislev questions and then we shall move to some other subjects. Okay. Is it significant that Yutas Kislev leads right into Hanukkah? Absolutely. There are many, many letters and talks that the Rebbe delivered explaining that connection. Also, before the Rebbe, there's also in the Maimorim and the Sikhs of the previous Rabbeim. But the most obvious connection is Shemen. I mentioned before that the Rebbe Rashab said that the Alta Rebbe compared to an olive, that when you press it, that's when it produces oil. But the connection goes deeper. It says that Shemen, and um, Shemen is compared to Primisater, Rosen de Rosen de Raisa, wine, Yayim is compared to Rosen, the secrets of Teda, and the secrets of the secrets is Shemen. So Shemen Shebet Teda is essentially what Yutas Kislev is all about. So it makes total sense that right from the Gu'ul of Yutas Kislev, we go into Hanukkah, which is all about lighting Shemen, that they found one flask, one pure flask of oil that was untouched, which is the idea of Primus Teda, pure. Pure divine wisdom, pure divine spirituality what Chassidus teaches us. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah is all around the Shemin. Even though there was a battle and they won a war, but it says in Chassidus, why do we then celebrate through lighting flames? Because the whole Indian of Hanukkah is to celebrate Ner Mitzvah V'tereir. It was a spiritual victory. Purim, Haman wanted to kill the Jews, God forbid, physically. Hanukkah, the Yevonim did not, the, the Greeks did not want to kill them physically. They wanted to kill their spirituality. Lashkichem Secha. We have no problem with Teda as a book of wisdom, but it's Teda Secha, your Teda, God's Teda. No problem that it's a book of ethics and morals, but it's at your mitzvahs, connecting it to the Shemen, to the purity of the divine. So indeed, that is the obvious connection. There's much more the Rebbe speaks about it in many letters, as I said, in many talks that he gave on this topic. And finally, what was the significance of printing the Tanya in different countries all over the world? So this was in Tav Shemem Dalet um, that the Rebbe came out with uh, begin printing Tanya in every city in the world. And the answer is very, and the explanation is very obvious. The Rebbe said it. But it's also Tanya's Tereh Shebik of Chassidus. Chassidus is meant to be everywhere in the entire world. So what better way to demonstrate that is to print a Tanya in every city not just bring a Tanya from another city, which is also something, but that city itself becomes now the, play, the publishing house of Tanya, the source of the light of Chassidus and the Moira and the luminary of Chassidus. 
So in preparing the world for Gula, have a tanya in every corner of the earth, every town, every city, every place. And you just see the list is quite mind-boggling. That itself. So even though it seems like symbolic, but the point, of course, is to learn tanya in each of these places and to demonstrate that every part of the world, no corner of the world does not have a tanya. That the era of Primis and ultimately the era of Gula and Mashiach, Gili Elikus, Be'el Mazah Gashmi, as the Alter Rebbe says in the beginning of chapter 37 in Tanya, what defines Gula. Okay. Now, with that, let's go to Parshish Vayeshev. Let's see how many more things we have to cover here. Okay. Lessons from Vayeshev. Yosef and his brothers. So I've talked in previous years, the whole controversy, how is it possible that his brothers should sell Yosef into slavery and even consider killing him? So briefly, the Shalosh says that Yosef, in the mind of the brothers, when he was telling his dreams, that they would bow to him, they saw him as a moyed b'malchus, as literally mutineering against the king. Because who was given malucha among the tribes? Every tribe had their quality. Yehuda. And here Yosef was basically saying, I will be the king. The Shalos words, they essentially, Yosef, they saw Yosef as defying Mashiach. Because from Yehuda would come David, from David would come Mashiach, and, Yehud, and Yosef was suddenly claiming that type of leadership. So they saw him as basically going, defying the very purpose of creation, Mashiach, and Amir Bamachus is Chayiv Misa, deserves death, a death penalty. Their mistake was, that the time had not come yet. That first there had to be Mashiach ben Yosef, then Mashiach ben David. First you needed Yosef, Teirah, Talmud, and then you come to Malchus Yehuda. That's the short explanation. As we see later indeed, Yehuda subjugates himself to Yosef, but then what does the Haftarah say there? That they do reconcile, and then the Haftarah says that they will come together and Yosef and Nasi David, the David Avdi Nasi Aleim Le'elam. David is from Yehuda, that Yehuda will ultimately dominate, but it had to go through Yosef. Also, the split between the Malchus Yisrael and Malchus Yehuda, again, Malchus Yisrael by whom? By Yeroven ben Nevot, who was from Shevet Yosef. So the, the, the Shvatim sensed all this. They sensed the period, the break that would happen, and all the negative things that would come out of it. Yet there was a need for that as well. And as I said, I've discussed this in previous episodes. I'm not going to go through in detail. But it always jumps out at us, so that's why I wanted to just sum it up. Here the question is, did Yosef get what he deserved because he taunted his brothers and said, I am better than you, and you will all bow down to me? Even though he may have deserved it for acting like a self-aggrandized, well, I don't want to use the words they're using here. People are writing a little irreverently. Were, were the other brothers wrong for what they did to him? If we have a classmate who's a teacher's pet and taunts us every day that he's better than us, can we throw him into a pit of snakes? I think the answer is quite obvious. Another person writes, many people have a problem with the brothers selling Yosef into slavery. But is there any way in Chaza, anywhere in Chazal where Yosef is criticized for taunting his brothers with his colorful coat and saying, I'm better than you, and you will all bow down to me? Okay. So there's no question we see from the very verse when Yosef interprets, the, it tells them his dreams, and it says, V'oviv shamer es hadover. And Oviv, his father was standing and protecting the idea, whatever that means, the Gemara says, one of the meanings is he didn't want to interpret it. 
Because in interpreting a dream, the dream goes according to the interpretation. So clearly, the, Yaakov Avinu was intending to say, to, to, was thinking that if you don't interpret it, it may not be fulfilled quite this way. Yeshev was being honest. He loved his brothers, his brothers loved him. But thus says, boy. There are Chazal that talk that by Yeshev doing that, Yeshev was punished in certain ways. But no, you cannot say he deserved what happened to him because of that. There's no justification for that. On the other hand, when they do, re, 22 years later, when they do reunite, what does Yeshev say? He doesn't blame them. He says, Hashem wanted me to be here, to bring you life, to save the world. So Yosef understood, as well as Yaakov ultimately, that there was a deeper purpose to bring the Jews to Mitzrayim, later it would be Golos Mitzrayim, Yitzis Mitzrayim, at the time for Yosef to help save the world through the grain supply that he provided in the time of the famine. So there was no question a higher hand. But the Shvatim, did they know that? That's why later by the Asari Rugi Malchus, even though it was a cruel Roman emperor that said, he says, what does it say in your Torah? When you kidnap someone, you deserve the death penalty. You kidnapped your brother and sold him into slavery. You deserve the death penalty. His intentions were cruel, anti-Semitic, hatred. But they did send up a shleich to heaven, the ten martyrs, Asari Arugi Malchus, and, and in heaven they heard, that this is a decree in heaven. Like we spoke before about Yutas Kislev, even though it, started, it, it maybe came technically below, but there was a deeper reason. So in other words, that in some way, the brothers were responsible. And, they, and the ten martyrs were the, the result of that. So it's a whole deeper story, but bottom line is, taunting is never appropriate. Maybe that's one of the basic lessons. And on the other hand, to do something to someone because they taunted you, especially to that extreme, is also not appropriate. I think that's pretty clear in this whole discussion. So there's the deeper story and there's the practical story. And always be careful when you say something, even if you're treated in a special way. Be careful what you say and how you say it. You never know what that causes. And in general, it's not appropriate to gloat or to taunt and so on. Why was Yeshev given special attention and not Ruvain, the firstborn? In most cases, we are taught, and we usually see a father giving special honor to his firstborn. But in the recent, but in the recent passion we read, we see Yaakov giving the special attention to Yosef, is there a reason that Reuven, the firstborn, was forsaken? So first of all, you see clearly that Teresh Yisaini, that um, Reuven is treated as a firstborn, both in the blessing that Yaakov gives him, even in some of the stories in Chumash, and definitely in Medrashim. Yosef was a firstborn from Rachel, remember. So he really, Yaakov had two firstborns going by the mother. Reuven from Leah, and, uh, and Yosef from Rachel. Remember Rachel, had a special place in, in uh, Yaakov's heart. Not to say Leah did not. At the end of the day, he, they were both his wives. But Rachel had something, as Chassidus explains, Rachel is Malchus, Leah is Bina, and Malchus that, uh, that Rachel had came and connected to uh, ya- Yaakov in a very particular way. So Yesuf carried that element of firstborn. But it wasn't a competition. Each one had their role. As a matter of fact, Reuven actually was in some ways, many ways, exonerated because he did not play a, re- a direct role in the selling of Yosef. He had a certain heart to him. So there wasn't that element of that, that aspect. And remember also, when you're talking the Torah, everything in the Torah has deeper meaning. Every Shevet has its special quality. Look, Levi ends up being the Shevet chosen to serve in the temple. 
And he's not a Bechar altogether. Yehuda is also not a Bechar, and he becomes the Malchus, the kings, ultimately Malchus based David, Mashiach. So you have to remember, every Shevet is unique in his own way. He's a divine Shevet, Shifte Yudke. So it's not about preferential treatment. Yosef had to receive certain Hamshachas. Chassidus explains that Yosef, being that Rocha was Malchus, Yosef was Yesod, he was Mamshich Yaakov into Biyah, into the lower worlds. As we see indeed, he's the one that ends up in Egypt. Mashbir Bordi, the one that feeds, sustains, and nurtures, and nourishes the whole world, bringing the Hamshachas of divine, of divine revelations and transmissions into the lower world, even Ervis Haaretz, the depraved land of Egypt and Elam Hazah so each shevet has its role. That was the role of Yosef. And that's why Yaakov indeed empowered him with Xenus Pasim, special coat, and other things that how he treated him. The brothers Vayikanu, you could be Vayikanu on a physical level, also on a spiritual level. As we discussed earlier, the different reasons that the brothers may have decided to, to saw Yosef as a threat, because they saw him as a threat to godliness, not just to themselves. Or not, at all, not at all to themselves. Okay. There are two more controversial questions in this week's Pasha, Yehuda and Tamar. In the Pasha, it relates a bizarre story of Tamar dressing up as a harlot and meeting Yehuda in a cornfield. Of a cornfield in an open place. Later on, when Yehuda finds out Tamar was pregnant from an illicit relationship, he orders her to be executed, but then recants once he finds out he was the father. First of all, where does it say the punishment for harlotry is the death penalty? And if it is the case that the death penalty was accurate according to the Torah, then Yehuda should have committed suicide because, because if what they did was a sin, he was also responsible for participating in it. But guess what? In the end, they are rewarded that King David and ultimately Mashiach descended from their illicit relationship. How can we reconcile the story with the concept mitzvah boba veda? They have a mitzvah. A mitzvah that comes from a sin is... It's not a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to anoint a king, honor a king, and there are many mitzvahs the king himself is commanded to do. How can these mitzvahs come through an avera, through a sin? Well, between the very lines of your question lies the answer. When you read the story, and again, the Torah has to be looked at in the deepest level possible, this is really the story of the birth of Mashiach and Geula, which would come from Yehuda. So Yehuda had two sons. He gave one son to Tamar, and that son refused to have a child with her, whatever the reason is. So, and then he was killed, it says, because he spilled seed. For that you kill a person? No, because it was destined that from them should become a birth of the family that will ultimately bring Mashiach. He was tampering with the very purpose of existence. Then comes the second son, and the same thing happens. At that point, Yehuda says to himself, he knows that Mashiach has to come from this branch, from Tamar, from his family. So his third son, he says he'll give it to Tamar, but he doesn't end up giving because most likely the reason is he was afraid. First of all, the third son may also do the same thing, refuse to have a child, or maybe the two times prove that maybe there's something's wrong here and the children won't come from this branch. At the end of the day, God has his way and Yehuda is the one that impregnates her. So ultimately the child did come from that branch. But Yehuda never intended it to be that way. It's another discussion, how did Yehuda go to a person in the field, and so on. 
But the end of the story is that she does get pregnant, and as soon as Yehuda sees that. So when Yehuda sees that she's pregnant, which is meant he knew that from her should come the descendant of Mashiach, so he realized she's also part of the problem. Then he realizes, no, Abraham made it happen to, through him, unwittingly. Now why does it have to come unwittingly? So Chassidus explains, and Svarim explained, because in general, Mashiach has to come from the opposite, from the darkest. The children of the daughters of light is a similar story, also from an illicit relationship. It's another discussion. Why does it have to come from an illicit relationship? And we have to also be careful not to say, oh, you know what? Every illicit relationship brings great things. That's not exactly the case. It's very, very rare, and it's in a unique way when the Taylor says so, when the Abishas sets it up. Not we have the right to do that. It says in Chsidis that Yehudim, El Yenim, when they come down below, they're completely illicit and prohibited. In Atsilus, they are holy. Because the great, great things, when they come down below, can be the worst possible thing. But in these instances, that's the way it had to come from the darkest, from the opposite. And that's why it's not a mitzvah above the, the Aveda, because of that reason. Because this is God setting it up. It's not someone's looking to do a mitzvah through an Aveda, God forbid. But the Ebrister set up, that's how it should be, because Mashiach would then have the power to transform the world, as the Gemara says about Avadja Hager. I'm sorry, about, yeah, it's a Sefer Avadja. He was a Ger, he was a Ger, he was, came from Edom, that the greatest prophecies about Mashiach are from Avadja. Why? Because, to cut down a tree, you need the wood from the tree to cut it down. You need the thing itself to cut it down. Dafka is someone who came from Edom, from, from Moyav and, from, and from, um, from Esav ultimately, is the one that cuts down the tree, which means brings Mashiach and Geula. So the transformation comes from the darkness within itself. Okay. Let's move to a few other subjects. We'll go over, this week is also Thanksgiving, so someone asked a question, are we allowed to celebrate Thanksgiving since it's a secular holiday and not a religious idol-worshipping holiday? First of all, Thanksgiving, the Rebbe made clear, he spoke about it in a Fabrengen, that it represents the essence of this country, but also represents what Taylor says, gratitude, to thank God for our miracles. So the Rebbe saw Thanksgiving as actually a very noble day, consistent with the Sheva Mrs. B'nai Neach. In that sense, Thanksgiving is a worthy holiday. Whether a Jew has to celebrate Thanksgiving, there's no mitzvah to celebrate it. You, know, you mean by eating turkey, or cranberry sauce, or whatever it may be. I mean, that doesn't say any way we have to do that. But, is there, but the concept of Thanksgiving, which is most important, what it stands for, absolutely, is a beautiful thing, and we should definitely use it. Now in Torah we say every day Thanksgiving. Moedani, Haidu, Haidu Lashem, Moedim, Anachnu Lefanecha, and we have the concept of gratitude. Kisove, Bikurim is a the fruits of gratitude, the first fruit offering of gratitude. So the concept of gratitude is everywhere, and Thanksgiving therefore is consistent with that. Beyond that, as I said, I'm not going to get into celebrating how you celebrate. Or you don't celebrate if you want to talk about Thanksgiving then by all means and influence others in that spirit. Absolutely, it's a great opportunity to do so. And let's, um, and let's all show that thanksgiving to Hashem for the blessings and the gifts that we are given.
Okay, there are two now news events that uh, immediately come into my inbox. It's usually the case when things start happening out there. What does Torah, what does Chassidus have to say? And I feel honored to be a platform where we can talk about this, and this is a good opportunity at chassidusapply.com. You can pose any question. Nothing is taboo. Everything will be addressed. Some things will be are backed up simply because of the, the, the sheer volume of questions that come in. But since these are timely, let me address them. First one was about man, a man posing as a Jew. What do we learn from the story of the man who posed as a Jew and married a Jewish woman? There was a recent controversy where a Lebanese man from a Muslim family who has studied and practiced Judaism for many years but was rejected by the Syrian Sephardic community when he tried to officially convert because the Syrians have a policy that don't accept converts. I did not hear that part of the story, so I'm not sure that's confirmed, but let's I'll assume so. So what do we learn from this story? Another question. So this man, then, this man then decided to just pretend he was born Jewish. It became a big problem when he married a woman, and after she found out, and after she found out he wasn't really Jewish. And then he admitted to the fact. He's definitely wrong for lying and perpetrating a fraud that he was really Jewish, but shouldn't the Syrian community bear some responsibility, too, in this case? If they would have done the right thing, he would have been converted properly and the marriage problem would have been averted. What right does the Syrian community have to defy the Torah and Allah can refuse to accept converts when the Torah allows it? Can the Syrian community be censured for their actions? Should we boycott eating their ashgacha, their restaurants? Their businesses because of how they disrespect, disrespect Allah. Well, let me just state right at the outside. You're conflating two things that have nothing to do with one another. You have an issue with the Syrian community, take it up with them. You don't have to wait for this story to happen. Here the story, the focus is very straightforward. A guy lied, he perpetrated a lie. I don't really care what reason it was. It's not what you do, you don't do it. It's not a menshacha thing to do. It's definitely not a terror thing to do. So let's just call a spade a spade. The issue about Syrians and whether they accept conversion or not, that this would have been avoided had they accepted, to me, that's uh, crooked logic. First of all, maybe they shouldn't have accepted. Maybe if, if they went to an Ashkenazic rabbi, they may not have accepted him either. It takes time to convert, and maybe he was not really interested in converting. You're assuming so many things. We generally, generally dissuade someone from converting. All that you ignore, as if all would have been perfect. So it sounds to me like there's an extra grind, and you know, I call it as it is. You're right, you're entitled to write, and I'll read every letter, but I have to also be able to respond. An axe to grind that is completely no basis. What stopped him from going to other communities if he didn't get it there? The Syrians are not the only rabbis on earth. As far as the Syrians go, I will actually defend them. They're entitled, whatever minig they have, or whatever meseda they have, what their strict guidelines are about, about conversion. You don't want to go to them, don't go to them. But they're entitled they're not, are they doing something illegal? I've not seen anyone that says that a community can't make such a decision, maybe because they want to protect against assimilation. Maybe they're, they have a mesera that goes back in their own communities. Maybe they had a pizza in this area. It's like challenging any khumra that anyone has. Now, I haven't really researched it, whether, whether there were halachic issues with what they've done. But again, I don't want to conflate matters. It's a completely different discussion that's not relevant to this discussion at all. Now, as far as what we learn from it, we learn from it that we have to follow Allah. Before you marry someone, the rabbi who marries needs to check. And before you marry someone, find out credentials. Just because a person looks nice, and they look Jewish, or they talk Jewish, today we live in a world where a lot of people may not even know sometimes that their mother was not converted, 
or it was a wrong, or not, a, not a halacha conversion. So we have to be very careful and vigilant in a beautiful way, not here to humiliate anyone, not here to insult anyone. I've dealt with many situations, but all can be preempted. Do not wait till the last minute and then you have to humiliate someone and say, hey, by the way, how do we know you're Jewish? You, you look at the, into these things far, far earlier so we don't get, yourself in, we don't get ourselves in the situation. That's not, our goal is not to humiliate this fellow as well. They did the, I'm not here to criticize anyone. Maybe they did do the due diligence. Maybe he really was able to con them all. But usually they're documentation. It's not just a person's word. There's documentation of parents, either a kasuba from parents or other things that Abonim check into to vouch for somebody's Judaism. How do you know? With all that's gone on through history, especially in the later genera- last generations, there has to be a way of establishing this. So that's the lesson. That Torah has a very a foolproof method. Obviously, there's always mistakes can be made, but generally speaking, if you really are vigilant, you can discover most issues in time to not hurt or humiliate or insult anybody. Another controversial topic, I don't like reading these and talking about it, but we are supposed to address everything. Torah addresses, Chassidus addresses. How should we react to the recent scandal about an author of Jewish children's books? I'm going to stay away from reading a name, even though names are mentioned, simply because there's no reason everyone knows who we're talking about. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please address the John Doe Parsha? Should we be giving him the benefit of doubt? Should we remove his books from our homes? Should we discuss it with our kids? A few others I'll read, then I'll answer, and I'll respond to them, all of them. There has been a buzz in the media regarding a number of bookstores and other outlets removing the publication, publications of a specific writer from their shelves due to allegations that he was engaged in inappropriate behavior. They based their actions on response from Rabbanim stating that although the allegations have not yet reached a Besdin, court of law, Torah court of law, it is important that those who have been coming forward see that inappropriate conduct of this kind is condemned. While I'm, certain, while I'm certainly of the belief that it is important to take a stand against this type of behavior and that, pro, that proactive support of the victims is essential, I'm wondering how all of this works with the Torah's way of assuming a, person's innocent, a person innocent until proven otherwise. Not believing slanderous talk and being careful not to hurt a Jew's parnosa. While many fingers seem to be pointing in one direction, how are the Rabbanim able to make such declarations publicly without first having a full court case? Thank you. Okay. Well, let's begin with a few things here. The fact that bookstores or schools or parents refuse to take or remove, refuse to have his books in their bookstores any longer is their personal choice. This doesn't mean he was found guilty in a court of law. People hear this. Even the rumor alone is bad enough for them. And uh, especially when you're dealing with children, hurting children by a person who's writing for children. The word's going to get out. Their children are going to hear about it in the news. And what does it look like? Okay, we're waiting to see. He, let him go to Abedin. No one's, no one's stopping from going. He should go to Abedin. And let him try to clear his name. Let everything be presented in halachic way, without bias. But when a word like that gets out, when a school hears, for example, that a teacher is accused of something, they don't just make business as usual. They could tell this teacher, you need to take a a leave of absence while we investigate. That doesn't mean you're guilty, 
But the rumors are out there. So let's just understand that in context. And especially when it's so charged. You know, if we're talking about an individual, that but the private matter between him and an adult, even that's inappropriate for a rabbi. And that too, a kahila, a community, can ask a rabbi to step down until we investigate. You see this happen all the time in business. Someone is accused of something inappropriate. They tell him to, we have to investigate. Paid leave, unpaid leave. You're talking about the welfare of people, especially children. And that's where it really drives the point home. The welfare of children, there should be zero tolerance. Now, if it turns out that complete accusations were complete, that all the investigations, these witnesses that came forth, are all false, that they're all liars, so then there's ways to redeem that and remedy it with the same amount of fanfare as was made by accusing you. We understand that. But the accusation is just simply too big to ignore and just say, okay, everything is regular. Even if you were able to pull it off, most people, it may not be the right thing. In addition to the fact that you can't pull it off because there's just too many people who are aware of it. Parents, educators, schools, bookstores, reputations. And a thing like this, unfortunately, yes, leaves a very big mark. It's called a... a and if it is true, obviously, then we all agree that, that everything should be eliminated from this person's writings and so on. Maybe he has to repay all these people that he's hurt from all the profits that he made. But that's already been decided by a bezdin. So as Jews, yes, we keep our mind open. Even he can do tshuva too, even if he did it. That's also possible. But it doesn't mean we don't protect ourselves and our children from books written by a person like that. What are you going to tell your child? Your child says, hey, I see we have his book. And I hear that in the news this happened. You can say, well, he's, he's presumed innocent, so meanwhile, that's just... No, you can't say that. Children are very simple, and they need to hear things in a very straightforward way. There's even an accusation as a parent. If it was your child, and even an accusation, take it seriously. Yes, always, no, you can't put, call that person guilty, but you could also say, right now, he's been accused. And now, when a person's accused, there's also halachas, what you do about it. You don't just assume it. You assume guilt... You can't punish him and you can't say that conclusively it happened. But you don't ignore it because the, the, the threat is there. And if you ignore it and then he hurts someone else, what do you do then? And remember, abuse is in the, is in the category not just of a nice, a, a small little uh, misdemeanor. You're talking about lives. It could be a din of a redif. But now we have to establish it as well. So I don't see any problem balancing these two elements, both the assumption of innocence and allowing him the, the, his time in Bezden while also reacting based on the news that we've heard. Which only brings to mind the whole main point of all of this is protecting our children. It's, 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 there's no words. It's, hard to, it's not fathomable to understand. Children are our most precious resource. They're vulnerable, defenseless. So anyone to hurt a child, and then someone who's dealing with children, and again, this is not an accusation, but in case it is true, I mean, what tells you the apotrophus la raiis, we have to be extremely careful. We need to learn to, to educate our children, educate our adults, educate our educators. You're dealing with God's children here. Al tigub is an expression. Do not touch Mashiach. Mashiach is the children in school, the young children. May we never hear any more events like this. Go straight into a world of Ruach Tumah Avimina Oretz. That's Ruach Tumah Avimina Oretz. 
that the spirit of toxins should be removed from this earth, only have healthy, loving relationships, jumping into the Gula Hamitis Vashlim. Okay, but see, time has... I always feel bad that I can't finish all the questions. But let me just do the Chassidus question and then... If we have two souls, why do we identify with only one of them as being our true identity? The spirit of Yutas Kislev. We have two souls. One soul is concerned with pleasure of the body and survival of the body, and the other soul is concerned with altruism, meaning the animal soul and the divine soul. So why do we identify with only one soul being true identity? The soul is everything. Body is transient. The soul whose concern is the, whose concern is the body is still a soul, why have I learned, heard that the characteristics of body-oriented souls, such as laziness or anger or hot-headedness, are not the real me? This is also my soul. And a soul is everlasting. Please clarify. So actually in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe discusses, and the Samach Tzedek says, Mihu Adam, who is the nefesh who is the person, the divine soul or the animal soul? In that tzaddik, the divine soul is his conscious personality. In a Rosh of the Tevle, which is the rest of us, the person even did one Aveda, the dominant personality is the animal soul. Just look, what are you dr- drawn, drawn to? Doesn't mean we're not drawn to the divine, but primarily to survival, self-interest, which is the animal soul. So yes, every one of us has a chelik mamash, a divine soul, which is the essence of who you are, and that's the true you, but that doesn't mean that your conscious personality is not a factor. So in many ways, you could say you have several personalities. You have the personality how you're behaving, how you're speaking, how you're thinking. You have the personality of your divine soul and its faculties, which is divine. You have the, the personality of the animal soul, which is, which is driven by self. A bainani is thought, speech, and action. His actualization, expression, is controlled by the nefesh alikis, but his faculties remain the animal soul, and they're driving him. He's just not acting on them. By, by a tzaddik, everything, even his very faculties, are only divine. So it all comes down to what aspect dominates in a person. And therefore, we say we have two personality types, two voices, animal soul, divine soul, they're at war, and it's up to you to decide which one will prevail. At the same time, we know all the time that the real person is really the Yisrael, the Rambam Paskins in Hilchas Gedish in the second, end of the second chapter, that a person, every Jew really wants to do mitzvahs and not do avedas. That's our true desire. But yet, on a surface level, sometimes it's not always manifest. And that's how you have to look at the picture. Okay, with that we conclude the special Yutas Kislev edition, 380, episode 380 of My Life, Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have a freilichen Yutas Kislev, Adashana Teva, Tikosevu, a very blessed year in Chsidis and may Chsidis permeate each of our personal lives, being applied in every aspect of our lives, and together, cumulatively and individually, go to Yefutzamaynasechachutzamar Damalka Meshiach, the coming of Mashiach, as a result of bringing Chsidis to the farthest outskirts, both within our spirits as well as in the larger world. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.